When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Hello, it's Tom here. We've got a great episode for you today. But before we get into that, I just want to let you know about Spiked's very exciting new daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked sent out every day at 6pm. It gives you your essential roundup of all of the content that we've published that day, along with exclusive commentary from the Spike team that you won't read elsewhere. And it is also completely 100% free. We're publishing more and more these days. So if you want to make sure that you never miss an article or an essay or a podcast, stop what you're doing right now and go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. Once again, that's spiked-online.com slash newsletters and today on Spiked. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with us this week, we have Spiked deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the ghettoization of culture, the return of pubs and the death of Prince Philip. Hank Azaria is apologizing and opening up about the lessons he learned from playing controversial Simpsons character Apu. He faced backlash over the fact he is white and the character is Indian. I apologize for my part in creating that and participating in that. You know, part of me feels like I need to go around to every single Indian person in this country and personally apologize. Thank you. Come again. Acclaimed voice actor Hank Azaria has apologised, in his words, to every single Indian person for his portrayal of Apu in The Simpsons. Azaria, a white actor, has voiced the Indian-American shopkeeper since the 1990s, but stopped last year. The Simpsons showrunner Matt Groening also announced last year that white actors would no longer voice non-white characters. Azaria says that the beloved show and his voiceover, despite good intentions, had contributed to structural racism in the US. Meanwhile, in Britain, the BBC's diversity manager, Miranda Wayland, criticised the Beeb's crime drama, Luther. Although the lead role, DCI John Luther, is played by a black actor, Idris Elba, Wayland said that the character was not authentically black, partly because he doesn't have any black friends or eat Caribbean food. Ella, <laughs> you've uh, written about Luther this week. What did you make of this? Well, Waylon was talking in one of these places where saying things like that, which usually most people would find outrageous and, and based on stereotype is acceptable, talking at a kind of TV conference in Cannes to other people who agree with her and, and saying, you know, things like the problem with Luther was that he didn't eat any Caribbean food and he didn't have any black friends. And she says, this just doesn't feel authentic. And she said that it's not just about seeing diverse faces like black man, like Idris Elba on screen, but about making sure that everything around them, their environment, their culture, the set is absolutely reflective. I mean, how you have a Caribbean set in a show about British coppers, I don't know. You kind of (laughs) can't really work out what she would want. Would she want Idris Elba to play up to a kind of stereotype? Is there a way of being authentically black? And really important point to note is that there have been lots and lots and lots of black people on social media and in discussion groups on Instagram and other places 
saying, you know, what the hell? We were trying to get away from stereotypes and now you're suggesting that the only time a black person on screen would have worth is if they play up to stereotypes, you know, a kind of black version of Mrs. Brown's Boys, which is like the bane of every Irish person's life because it plays up to <laughs> stereotypes. It seems really ridiculous. But I mean, this this is where we're at. And I mentioned in my column this week, the BBC Three series Famalam, which is created by and acted by lots of young black people from African backgrounds, from Caribbean backgrounds. And they had this one sketch and it's a comedy show called Jamaican Countdown, which is quite obviously ridiculously stereotypical about Jamaican people kind of smoking joints and daggering to the countdown theme tune and all this kind of stuff. And it's, it all gets a bit chaotic and it's very obvious that it's people taking the piss out of themselves mm. and out of their own parents and out of their own families. And, you know, there's nothing in it that is malicious. There's nothing in it that's undermining. It's quite obviously a joke among people who are from that community. But there was a massive outcry about it, you know, from some very high profile commentators, Paul Gilroy, people from the Jamaican Diaspora Council, saying that it was unacceptable in times of Black Lives Matter to do this kind of thing. And you just think, well, what is the acceptable way then to be diverse on screen? If people who are diverse can't be diverse in a way that they see as authentic, and if you know Idris Elba has to play up to a certain role to be authentic for the BBC's diversity chief, where does that leave you as someone who's meant to be part of this diverse group, whether you're a woman, a gay person, a black person, anyone who gets in this kind of catch-all term of minorities, what does it mean to be authentically part of that group? And the end result is obviously a complete, you know, it's just a limitation of artistic freedom. It means that everyone who's ever going to write a new TV series is going to be, you know, hamstrung and frightened by the idea that they'll be told they're not diverse enough. And that does no good for diversity for black audiences watching programs that does no good for black people writing television series. It does no good for anyone. It's just a very crass way of looking at how representation and diversity should work. Diversity is meant to be about difference. And if you say that there can't be any difference, it's impossible to have a black actor who doesn't go home and eat rice and peas because he's not authentically Caribbean then. I mean, where where does that lead? Tom? No, I think the comments from that BBC diversity chief just showed the amazing knack that kind of people of a woke persuasion have for resurrecting quite bigoted ideas in like politically correct form. Because for mm. such a long time, you had so many ethnic minority actors who really bristled against the fact that they would be confined to a black role or an Asian role. There was that essay from Riz Ahmed a couple of years ago saying, you know, maybe one day I won't be asked to play a terrorist or a minicab driver. Maybe one day I'll just be a character called Dave. And what's interesting about the Luther character, as reflected in some of the reporting, was that what attracted Idris Elba to it was the fact that race was not a factor in it. You know, this could just be a kind of more universalizing character, a character in which that is entirely superficial and incidental aspect of their presence on screen. So to suggest that, as this diversity chief was, that that to reflect the kind of reality such as it is of the black experience in Britain, it's like this kind of nouveau form of that burden of representation that to be a black creative or an actor or whatever, you have to constantly give a kind of statement or impression, often mm. a kind of very predetermined political impression about what it is to do that. And then on the flip side of that this week, you have this kind of ongoing row with the Apu and the Simpsons stuff, which has been reignited because Hank Azaria, as you were saying, not necessarily seriously, but announcing he was going to go on some sort of apology tour of all Indian American people. And there again, you see uh, just that kind of nervousness around stereotypes and around representation, but in different form and in quite a ridiculous form because cartoons, as we know, deal in broad brushstrokes. They deal in stereotypes. The Simpsons in particular 
it's a parade of kind of immigrant stereotypes with bad accents, you know, from groundskeeper <laughs> Willie with his kilt and ginger monobrow through to Bumblebee Man as well as Apu. And I think there you see a slightly different aspect to it, which is I think that even as recently as, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, there was a kind of sense that you could kind of poke fun at difference, as long as it wasn't done in a malicious way, that you could kind of laugh at the things that kind of distinguished us in a way that was quite lighthearted. And that that wasn't necessarily about demonising anyone. It was also just about being kind of relaxed with that kind of thing. And I think there's yeah. a tendency to always think about things as the bad old days, but often I think we can we can learn a lot from a disposition which is just less neurotically obsessed with this stuff, as I think the whole Apu discussion certainly attests to. I think what has become so clear is that this kind of racial identity politics and, you know, wokeness in general has revived just an incredibly moralistic view of art. So you'd have kind of Puritans of the past judging TV, films, books. Did they blaspheme against God? Do they have too much sex? Do they have too much violence? But today's kind of woke Puritans judge on, is it diverse? And I think crucially, does it send the correct message about diversity? And that's why Luther, you know, is in the firing line because Idris Elba just happens to be black. And that contradicts the ideology because, you know, in this view, black people have to represent something. As, as, as you said, they're not simply actors. They are, they are stand-ins for an entire race, for an entire worldview and culture and things like that. Ella? There was a really depressing bit to come out of the Luther story, which was that uh, Neil Cross, who's the creator and writer of the show, replied to Whalen's criticism. He was sort of trying to disagree with her, but actually he said something far worse because he said <laughs> it would have been an act of tremendous arrogance for me to try and write a black character and we would have ended up with a slightly embarrassed, ignorant, middle-class white writer's idea of a black character. So that was his way of trying to say, you know, Idris Elba doesn't have to play this stereotypical black role. He can just be Idris Elba. But actually what he's saying is don't attack me because I'm white and I can't write a black man. And that's mm. just, it, it's cowardly and it's crass because we know that there are, if you're a good writer, that there are many people who have written characters either in books or films or TV shows that have nothing to do with our identity. I mean, Zadie Smith is one of the few artists out there who comes out and regularly says quite good political things on this, you know, as a woman of colour herself saying, I can write whoever I want to write because it's not about identity. In fact, she said that identity is a huge pain in the ass that you have to get around. But there's this, if we get to a position in which, you know, artists feel constrained and nervous about stepping outside the box, then you're going to inevitably have really boring TV programs and really boring books coming out in the future because you don't push boundaries in art just for the sake of it because that also creates bad art. But when you, you know, the whole idea of fiction, whether it be a, you know, a pretend cop film or anything else is about allowing imagination to run riot. So the whole fetishization of authenticity is ridiculous in an artistic, you know, setting because the whole point is nothing is authentic in fiction because it's fiction. So can we all just relax a little bit and stop, as you and Tom have said, using art as a kind of playground for politics, basically, to ram political ideas down people's throats and instead just accept that a show like Luther, which for 10 years was given, you know, numerous awards, Idris Elba won numerous awards, it was fantastically successful. And at no point until now, after the show is over, finished in 2019, do people mm. find any problem with it. At the time, no one had a problem with it. So maintaining that kind of perspective is also really important. Did you know that many of the ideas in Genesis are actually co-opted from Mesopotamian myths? The idea that God created the world in seven days is also found in the Babylonian creation myth. 
And if you think of the Garden of Eden, the motif of the serpent appears in the Sumerian epic of Gilgamesh. These are just a few of the fascinating things I've learned since watching the history and archaeology of the Bible, available now on The Great Courses Plus. This course goes beyond the Bible itself. It gives you a real sense of the societies that the Bible stories emerged from, alongside some of the archaeological evidence that helps to build up that picture. With The Great Courses Plus, there are so many opportunities to learn and to feed your curiosity about virtually anything. You can learn to speak a new language, learn how to play chess, dive into history of World War II, or explore the universe, and so much more. You get unlimited streaming access to hundreds of video and audio lectures from some of the best professors and top experts in their fields. And with the Great Courses Plus app, you can watch or listen on any device. Learn what you want, when you want to learn it wherever you are in the world. I want you to try The Great Courses Plus for yourself. I know you're going to love it. So right now, listeners to the Spikes podcast can get a 14-day free trial with unlimited access to the courses. Show your support for the Spike podcast and sign up now through our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. Don't wait. Redeem your free trial now at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spikes. Stage two of England's reopening roadmap began this week as pubs, restaurants and non-essential retail opened their doors to customers for the first time in four months. Hospitality venues are for the next five weeks still only allowed to serve customers outdoors. In the past five weeks since the last relaxation, when the stay-at-home order was lifted, cases have continued to decline. The number of daily COVID deaths is currently similar to the levels we were seeing in mid-July last year. So why are we still opening at such a glacial pace? Tom? No, the pace certainly is glacial. You had to kind of temper your excitement for being able to go and get a pint outside of a pub this week with the fact of it's going to be you know more than a month until we can actually sit inside these things despite the vaccine rollout success despite the dropping case numbers despite the fact let's not forget that last year test and trace was pointing out that it was a small proportion of outbreaks that they could trace back to hospitality venues i think it was around five percent mm. and so all the time you always have to kind of temper your enthusiasm for getting some measure of freedom back um, alongside <laughs> recognizing how total the assault on freedom has been and how slow us coming out of it has been Nevertheless, I think what this week reminded us is how important so many things which have been deemed non-essential are to public life, pubs being an important one of them. Throughout this crisis, particularly in the early days, pubs became a kind of byword for all that was wrong with like COVID at Britain. I remember Robert Peston got up in one of those press conferences in the run-up to the first lockdown. This is before the pubs had been closed properly, but Boris Johnson was warning people to stay away. He said, Prime Minister, is there ever an essential reason that you need to go to the pub? And it was a kind of <laughs> interesting kind of moment. Obviously, we're at the height of the crisis, but nevertheless, there was a kind of lack of recognition of how important just aspects of free society are, the kind of spontaneity, the fact that pubs are centres of communities, the fact that they're places where you not only just go to drink, but you go there to see other people, to be with other people, not even necessarily just the ones that you're sat in your little six-person bubble or whatever it is that's permitted at this point. And just that really important point that life, as we've seen over the past year, it really isn't just about existing 
and staying alive. Mm. It's also about living it and enjoying yourself. And I do think if it wasn't for so much of the kind of neo-puritanism that hangs around the public health establishment, pubs wouldn't have been singled out for such unique punishment as they have been over the past year with all those mad restrictions which made no sense, etc. But yes, at least a kind of sense of what we've been missing this week, which has been quite important, I think. Ella? It seems to me so often, and actually pretty much throughout this pandemic, pubs have become a kind of, it's a bit like the way in which people used to talk about kids um, at school as being sort of these horrific germ super spreaders pubs have always been this place where it's like the worst place you could ever be in in the pandemic the worst place for virus spreading despite the fact that you know pub landlord after pub landlord will tell you that you know from people dousing themselves in hand sanitizer at the door to the you know meticulous two meter rules and all that kind of stuff actually most people who've been to a pub know that they're pretty safe that the staff are have been trained within an inch of their life and then actually it's quite annoying <laughs> how regulated it is but you know and on top of that i mean i don't know about you guys but i've been sort of surprised at how few people were out on monday night actually i was getting the train back home at 11 after being out and i was the only one on the overground there was a certainly in in south london where i was there wasn't that kind of boom of people out again because actually part of the problem moving forward could be that a lot of people are still so freaked out unnecessarily at this point by the virus that actually the the reopening of society is not just hindered by government restriction but also by people having been you know scared witless over the last year but i mean People want to be sensible, I think. There is, for example, in South London, in Bermondsey and Rotherhithe at the moment, the kind of slightly concerning uptick in, you know, cases of the South African variant have been suggested that there might need to be, you know, more testing or perhaps a regional lockdown in parts of London because of that. So you hear that and you think, oh, you know, there's always the kind of threat in the back of your mind of things not going as smoothly. But just the most annoying thing is that isn't put into perspective. So instead of talking about what the government's doing to get to the people who still haven't been vaccinated, the hold up in the vaccination program that's to do with international politics and actually nothing to do with people being stupid or acting like a covidiot. But, in, you know, the lazy option by journalists, by political commentators, by politicians themselves is to just point to a handful of crowds in Soho on Monday night and say, ah, this is it, people putting pints before their parents. How <laughs> selfish. And, you know, that that's the easy way out of this, but that doesn't actually help either a population that wants and needs to get back to normal or preventing the virus from spreading. It's just scoring cheap political points. And, you know, how does this play out in terms of the future? There are already some fairly devastating stories coming out, of, for example, of old people being turned away from pubs because they don't have a smartphone to check themselves in through the NHS app. There's news now on the horizon that, that we'll only just have got pints back in our hand and the government's planning on putting calorie counters on the side of your <laughs> Stella. So having a bit of enjoyment and pleasure is hard to find these days. And as Tom says, it's not just important on a kind of superficial level of people want to let it all hang out. But the things like the return of pubs, the return of social spaces, cinemas, restaurants, places where people congregate in public is is a signifier of life coming back to normal that I think people really 
need and really want. And as soon as it can happen, it should happen. I think what was most scary was Boris Johnson's comments about the vaccine this week, where he essentially, you know, downplayed their efficacy. And, you know, this was this kind of sort of worrying hint that maybe things will open up even slower. You know, that, that was what was most worrying. He basically said that the reduction in hospitalisation and deaths has had nothing to do with the vaccines, which is very strange because even Public Health England have said at least 10,000 lives or so have been saved by it. Even stranger was that there was a kind of almost an international attack on the vaccine. Like the Justin Trudeau in, in Canada said a similar thing. He, he said quite dishonestly that the UK was having a deadly third wave as we're opening up, making the point that vaccines on their own won't keep us safe. In Australia, they're not going to open the borders, even when everyone has been vaccinated. And even as things are, should be getting brighter, even as we're being given that little bit of inch of freedom, you know, the gloomy clouds uh, seem to be forming again, at least not necessarily in terms of the actual disease, but at least our governments continue to be gloomy and can, can continue to downplay the prospect of, of freedom, which is very worrying. At least mm. some US states have opened up and have shown that it's possible, but can't tell if anyone's actually watching that. Tom? And I think so much of that that you're talking about, so much of the kind of downbeat messaging and as a consequence of it, the kind of messaging that can only really help to feed a level of vaccine hesitancy, at least in certain quarters. It's a huge own goal, but it's also kind of a product of the fact that for much of this crisis, the government haven't really taken us seriously. There's so much within this, which is about trying to nudge us one way or the other. There's so mm. much speculation that the vaccine passport scheme, whilst it might make it in some form or another, it's as much a kind of threat <laughs> that you can <laughs> go over the population, given the fact they wouldn't even come into the autumn anyway, through which you urge young people to get vaccinated. So, so much of these things at least get mixed up in a kind of nudging agenda to try and make sure that people don't rush out too quickly. They don't just assume it's over. And I think that's been really troubling that there hasn't been an ability to just level with us that I think arguably you did see in the early weeks of the pandemic from the experts mm. before the big U-turn and everything. On the flip side of that, and this speaks a little bit to what Ella was saying about the cautiousness, is that I think there's been an element of people not trusting each other as well. There was this YouGov poll this week was asking about whether people would behave themselves responsibly as the shops and the pub gardens and the restaurants reopened. 91% of people said they themselves would behave themselves, <laughs> whereas they thought only about 26% of the public would behave themselves. And there's always a bit of that thinking of yourself as slightly higher than maybe the rest of the population that some people might have. But at the same time, I don't think that's necessarily normal. And I also think it's been really fueled by the pandemic because we've been not only fed very fearful messages. We've not only been encouraged to see one another as vectors of disease, basically fed very misleading information about people breaking the rules when by and large people weren't, but also just that level of atomization, which being kind of sequestered to your own homes all of the time has fed that kind of more fear of other people. And that's something which I think may well be reflected in the slight hesitancy of some people to come out and it's going to be something that's going to take some time to get over. Because if you keep people away from each other for such a long period of time, and keep preaching to them that they are a threat to one another, you know, living under that for more than a year as we will be when this is all over is definitely going to have a really damaging effect on that kind of social atomization that we were already grappling with before this pandemic came along. You're listening to the Spiked podcast. This podcast, like all of Spiked's content, is free. There's no paywalls or no paid subscriptions. We rely on the support of our loyal listeners and readers like yourself to keep producing our groundbreaking podcasts, interviews, articles, essays, and more. So if you're a regular listener to our show, please do consider donating to Spiked, or even better, becoming a regular donor. 
even £5 per month can make an enormous difference. To start your regular donation today, just go to spiked-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the Spike podcast. Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, husband to Queen Elizabeth II, died at the end of last week at the age of 99. The longest serving royal consort in history, Philip retired from public life in 2017 after completing more than 22,000 solo public engagements since 1952. Almost a third of Brits say they have seen or met him in real life. He was, of course, well known for his many forthright comments or gaffes, as some would call them, Since Philip's death, the UK is officially in a period of national mourning until after his funeral on Saturday. Tom, what are your thoughts? Well, it's been a really interesting past week insofar as there has been a kind of solemnity about, certainly propagated by the back-to-back coverage of his life, um, which as I understand it has led to a quite high number of complaints to the BBC over the lack of available options. But you kind of see two things going on at the same time. I think one of which is any attempts from some people, particularly more on the kind of woke left, to try and just turn this into a discussion about him actually being a deplorable racist. And the BBC's refusal to talk about that tells you everything you need to know about the establishment has completely fallen flat because people just basically mm. liked the man. They thought he was a bit of a legend. They thought he was quite funny. They thought he was a bit of a relic from an older era, but in a way that they ultimately didn't have much problem with. That seems to be mm. the sort of response you get. And also a kind of sense that in contrast to some of the younger royals today, he really did believe in this idea of the royal family as being not something that is really about you, but is about public service, is about being slightly more low key, which is about just kind of getting on with it in a way that even William and Kate, let alone Harry and Meghan, don't seem to quite have the same sort of attachment to. It's a bit more about them. It's a bit more about soul bearing. That's been a bit of a schism, it seems like, in the royal family for some time. But at the same time, I think you also see, as we sort of look forward to the future of the monarchy, the fact that so much of the kind of the mutedness of this is interesting, but it'd be interesting as well to see how things go on in relation to Elizabeth, because so much of the support for the royal family doesn't necessarily rest on like a deep attachment to the notion of having a monarchy, the notion that they have a divine right to rule, the idea that they are mystic, special and above the rest of us. It's because in the entire post-war period, that couple specifically at the centre of the royal family were able to weather storms, were able to keep out of politics, were able to keep people on side really, for people to like them, think they were good eggs. But Mm. is that enough to sustain it? I don't necessarily think so. But then when you see how, as we often talk about, how crap republicanism is these days, who knows? So yes, there's been a weird mix, I think, of something which has been very much everywhere, but also muted in some respects, which I think is interesting. Obviously, the funeral is coming up this weekend. There'll be more and more coverage, more and more discussion. But yes, I think it just leaves a lot of questions dangling, really, about the, the future of that institution as we go forward. Ella? You have to remember that news moves so quickly that, you know, a month ago we were talking about the big event in the royal family was Meghan and Harry and their allegations of racism. And I mean, if, if it feels like we haven't stopped talking about the royal family in one <laughs> way or another, whether it's Andrew or Meghan and Harry or William and Kate and their desires on a career about mental health and all these kinds of things. The the royal family has been in the news more than I think they would like to have been in the last few years, really. And the BBC didn't really want to go all in on the firm side, you know, which Philip is on the firm side, because, you know, there's that split with Meghan and Harry. And then 
after having been accused of going too lightly, they suddenly cancel all the programmes for the afternoon. And there's this sort of odd over-the-top tribute to Prince Philip. I mean, it's reported in The Guardian today that everyone who was working on the census, all the sort of teenagers you can see running around the streets, catching up on people who haven't filled in the census, were told to go home at the news of Philip's death. And then and they weren't paid and they had to make up their hours over the rest of the week. So I'm probably not hiding my nausea at this public mourning for a royal, but that's because I'm a Republican. But then on the other hand, Tom is right that it is interesting because what does this mean for the future of the monarchy if all of the actions that happen to royal members seem to be parts in a soap opera? So even even the death of the Queen's husband is less really about Philip and actually now more about will Harry wear his admiral suit? You know, will Meghan send a card? You know, <laughs> and you know, as a Republican, you have to keep reminding people that there's nothing beneficial or serious or important politically about rowing about whether or not Meghan and Harry will appear at the funeral and what that means for, you know, black Britons and all this kind of rubbish. But that actually pointing to the fact that the superficiality of the royal family, having moved further and further away from an institution that wants to serve as an inspiration to the nation, as this kind of removed, remote, respectable idea of how one should be in the, in particularly in the role of the queen, and closer into this kind of dirty celebrity world where you're sort of wondering who's bitching about who it's t- it's time for them <laughs> finally to give up their role and it's perhaps crass to start talking about the abolishing of the monarchy and you know the same week that one of them's died so maybe i won't go that far but i think the more that this kind of scandal mongering happens around the royal family particularly at such a serious time of the death of a monarch, it proves to show how little there is serious about this institution and how little value they give actually, if only for kind of column inches and headlines um, among royal commentators. I think you're right. I think the newspapers have actually struggled to fill the pages, even though they've dedicated so much to Philip's passing and beyond the pre-written obituaries, which were all very interesting, by the way, because, mm. you know, his life is just so incredible and spans so many decades and society has changed so much. So there was, there was a lot interesting to say about that when he passed. There's a lot interesting to say about the man himself, particularly the gaffes, which everyone loves and, and, and enjoys. But after that, you're right. There just does seem to be, especially when the queen is out of the spotlight when as soon as things fall on the minor royals there really is just this kind of soap opera element which is quite tedious and unbecoming of an institution Mm. that's plays such a huge role in our society tom it is without wanting to kind of extrapolate from one family tragedy as it were you do see how despite the fact that the monarchy is obviously a bit of a creaking institution as you say the kind of failure for the kind of formal mourning to really take effect to kind of grip i think is a kind of interesting mm. reflection of that you also get such a clear sense that the kind of new monarchy or the new establishment if you like the kind of <laughs> the new aristocracy harry and meghan being a kind of bridge between the two is so much worse because at least in prince philip you see this in a lot of the commentary there was a kind of recognition on his part that the age of deference was kind of over you had to mm. bring something to the table. You had to be on some level of public servant. And, you know, we can argue about whether or not, you know, royals ever actually work a day in their life. But nevertheless, being that kind of character, which as we've talked about, kind of in some respects chips away a little bit about what is supposed to be different and what's supposed to be special. But also the way in which you see this interesting kind of bristling between that notion and the kind of newer trends around that kind of emotional incontinence that we see on behalf of the younger royals it kind of came mm. to a point really in the Diana period where, again, there was um, so much pressure put on 
the Queen and Prince Philip in particular to emote over this issue. Their kind of like studied detachment from it was something which they were actually criticised for. On the other hand, you have this incredibly kind of emotionally correct younger royals as well as new establishment, which is interesting because it's, if anything, it's trying to bring deference back. I mean, the Harry and Meghan thing, if nothing else, is a demand that you recognise their status as both worthy people and as victims, in a Mm. sense. And, you know, woe betide anyone who challenges them. So, you know, as much as I think the slightly muted nature of this particular period of public mourning has been probably definitely exacerbated by the fact that we're all under still quite severe restrictions, as it were, I think nevertheless reminds us that as slightly creaky as the old monarchy and the old establishment has becoming, as much as it does feel like the relic of an older era, what has been kind of held up to replace it in the form of the new royals or the new woke aristocracy is in so many respects a lot worse or at the very least much more annoying. Thank you for listening to the Spiked Podcast. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, make sure you keep up with all the latest from Spiked by signing up to our daily newsletter today on Spiked. Just go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters to sign up now.